At the beginning of a new year, we are asking one essential fundamental question. Have you been with Jesus? Last week, we looked at the passage that we'll look at again today, found in Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. And we considered that it's not what you know, but it's who you know in our Christian faith that makes the difference. Today, we are going to look at the same passage and consider that it's not what you know, but it's what you do that proves who you know. And so let us look together at Acts chapter 4, verse 13 through 22. Hear God's word. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. God's word, let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for uh, the privilege of being able to assemble in the name of Christ and to do so without fear of negative repercussion or uncertainty or even death. Father, we thank you for the joy of being able to lift our voices together and to worship our great God and creator. And we thank you for your word. As we ask ourselves the question, as we start a new year, whether we have truly been with Jesus, we pray that none of us this morning would leave here without that question answered that none of us would leave here unable to say that we have had an encounter with you. We pray, O oh God, as we come to the reading of your word, that you would be with my lips, though they be feeble and made of clay, that you would enable me to proclaim your word in a way that would speak to each of our hearts, and that your Holy Spirit would take the word proclaimed and use it to transform our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we ponder the question, have you been with Jesus, last week again we saw that for many of us we have three different levels at which we answer this question, and I'll just by way of review touch on those again also for those of you who were not here. Uh, oftentimes we answer the question either conceptually by what we believe about God, or perhaps we answer the question morally by whether or not we do the right thing, whether we do what we know God wants us to do. But very rarely, or much more uh, 
rare, or much rarer is it the case that we answer the question based on whether we truly have an experience with him, whether we have had an encounter with God. And so as we look at this text, one thing that stands out is not so much that the disciples didn't know the right thing, they did know the right thing. And so I don't want to downplay the importance of believing the right thing about God. It's not whether they did the right thing or didn't do the right thing, because after all, our morality is important. If we say that we believe in God and yet live like we do not, then ultimately we betray ourselves. But what I rather want to focus on as we, as we look at a new year, as we have already entered a new year, is whether when we encounter Christ, whether our lives have been changed by that encounter. I think for many of us, we have encountered the God of the Bible on a conceptual level. We have perhaps encountered him on a moral level. But have you encountered this creator? Have you encountered God on an experiential level? Can you say that you know him through Christ? Can you say that you belong to him? So I believe that our greatest challenge as believers is not in appreciating right thinking, right doctrine, orthodoxy, if you will, but rather our greatest challenge is assuming that right thinking is the sole fruit of a restored relationship. We saw last week how that the heart of the gospel is not just to correct our thinking, is not just to teach us to do the right thing and make right choices and decisions, but the heart of the gospel is a restored relationship. The fact that all of us were created in the image of God and we were created for one fundamental purpose and that is to love him and to obey him and to bring him glory. But because we are born sinners, that relationship with our creator has been fractured. It has been harmed. It is, in fact, one that is antithetical to what it was intended to be. We are enemies of God. And so the question is whether we have had a restored relationship with him. Today we're going to look at the three uh, groups of people that we identified last week and see their responses to Christ. The first is the response of the Jewish leaders. Secondly, the response of the disciples. And thirdly, the response of the watching world. Now one point that I want to make before we go any further is that all three groups of people knew about Christ. These events, the events of his passion, the events of his death, the event of his resurrection did not happen in a vacuum. They did not happen uh, in, in secrecy. They happened in the very city just a few days before the events that we just read about here in Acts chapter 4. So everyone there would have at least heard if they weren't personal eyewitnesses to the reality of which Peter and John were speaking. Everyone, you might say, knew about Jesus. The question is, did they know him? And this is ultimately where we see the differences in their responses. So let's first look at uh, part one, the response of the Jewish leaders. If we were to determine the veracity, the integrity of someone's faith solely by what they believe, then it would appear that the Jewish leaders are not far from the kingdom of God. After all, they were the ones who were the theological experts. They were the ones who defined what you should and should not believe. They were the ones who wrote the gold standard for orthodoxy in their day. They were, by all accounts, the faithful. 
If you asked any Jew on the street who is the most righteous person you know, chances are they would have pointed to one of the scribes, one of the Pharisees, one of the Jewish leaders. However, when we examine their conversation, what is startling, what is frightening, is not that they had an animosity towards God. See, that's where we often misunderstand the text. We see the Jewish leaders as being uh, contentious towards God. It's not that they had an animosity towards God. In fact, the reason why that they did not do any harm to the disciples is because they saw that God was being praised. However, there was a difference, there was a slip, there was a disconnect between what they said they believed and how they responded to Jesus. And we see this in what they said when they were behind closed doors. It says, But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In other words, they saw the proof. They saw the miracle. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them the disciples and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And so when we see the response of these Jewish leaders to Christ, what we see is a group of people who prioritized security above surrender. And that's the first thing that I want you to write down, to bear in mind, to think about whenever we answer the question, have I been with Jesus? Do I prioritize security over surrender? Now, let's give for a moment the Jewish leaders a benefit of the doubt. They were, after all, in charge of the temple. They were the peacekeepers, or so they thought, of the city. And so the security of the city, the security of what they considered orthodox, the security of what they believed to be sound doctrine was one of their foremost priorities. But they did not surrender to the truth that they saw before them. And so I will reiterate something which I said last week, which is that knowing about Christ... Knowing about God is not the same as knowing Christ, knowing God. And our responsibility is not simply to be the gatekeepers of the bastions of orthodox faith. Our responsibility as Christians, as those who have had an encounter with Christ, is to be the mouthpiece of the gospel, to be the hands and feet of Christ in our community. We are to, if you will, prioritize surrender above Security. That's the fundamental characteristic that we see pervasive throughout the church of the early uh, first century. As we look at the church, the work of the Holy Spirit through God's people in the book of Acts, we see that God's people consistently prioritized surrender to God above their own security. But that was not the response of the Jewish leaders. The standard that they had set for the crowd was one that it was okay, it was acceptable to believe in Christ so long as you didn't teach about Christ. It was acceptable for a miracle to be done in his name so long as you did not say what Peter and John had been saying, which is that there is no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved. 
what we see in the Jewish leaders, unfortunately, is that the standard that they had imposed on the crowd, that they had imposed on their church, that they had imposed on the people, was mistaken, was mistaking morality for holiness and doctrine for discipleship. The dividing line between the two is so close that you and I easily make the same mistake. We think of holiness, the first thing we think of is doing the right thing. That is the byproduct of holiness. The biblical understanding of holiness is being set apart for God. We think of discipleship and the first thing that we often think about is knowing the right thing. Well, again, that is a byproduct of discipleship. It is not discipleship. Discipleship is knowing the right person. We saw that last week. It is encountering the living God of the Bible, encountering the Christ who was made flesh and dwelt among us, who declared to us the glory of the God, the glory of God, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father. And so the fundamental question for those of us who find ourselves in the camp of the Jewish leaders is this, and I'm going to repeat it because I think it's that important. How do we extradite ourselves from the trappings of our behavior that have become parasitically associated with what we believe to be theologically true, but are in essence a blind, hindering us from encountering the God of creation? Now, that's a big question, so let me ask it again. How do we extradite ourselves, remove ourselves from the trapping of a behavior, of a habit, of a worldview, of a philosophical construct that has become so attached with what we believe to be true, theologically speaking, but in all reality is a blind, is an obstacle, is a roadblock hindering us from encountering the God of creation. Now, you may say, well, I just don't follow you. Let me take it a step further, because sometimes when we think of idols, most of us picture, you know, a 20-foot Buddha somewhere in the, in, the, in the far east. But an idol, and that would be an idol, but an idol is not simply a 20-foot Buddha, 20-foot Buddha. An idol is anything, particularly any part of God's good creation, that we elevate to the level of of God that we put above him any part of God's good creation that we enjoy more than him now first thing that probably came to your mind is all of those heinous sins that we like to dwell on maybe the last thing that would come to our mind is how we think about God but how we think about God how we do church can actually become just as much of an idol as a 20-foot Buddha. And we see that in the response of the Jewish leaders. Because by the standard of the day, they would have been orthodox. By the standard of the day, they would have been devout. By the standard of the day, they would have been the ones who had it all together. But they did not know God. They did not have an encounter not a cerebral intellectual pontification, but an encounter, a personal experiential encounter with Christ. Now, one thing I want you to note is that it is not the good deeds or the manifestation of the supernatural that was unsettling to the Jewish leaders. 
Rather, what unsettled them was that these things were done in the name of Jesus. After all, they were good Jewish men. In their upbringing, they were taught to honor God and not man. And they knew that Jesus was a man. He was clearly, in their minds, not God. Also, most of the members of the council were Sadducees. And the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. And so for this Peter and John to be standing in the precincts of the temple saying that this man that they clearly knew had died rose again and because of his resurrection this lame man was healed in their mind was simply illogical, incomprehensible, theologically untrue. For the Jewish leaders, their actions revealed the idolatrous nature of a mind more comfortable with understanding God than knowing him. All of us living in the 21st century Western world, all of us seated or standing here in here this morning have the same temptation. And here's why it's so dangerous. Because it's satisfying. It's not ultimately satisfying. It's a partial satisfaction. It's satisfying to become obsessed with trying to understand the divine, trying to comprehend God. And so we console ourselves. We become comfortable with understanding him without encountering him, without knowing him. When we increase in our understanding, we pat ourselves on the back saying, I'm growing in my faith. And please do not hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you grow in faith, your understanding will also not be complementary, will not also grow, because it will. But if we focus on growing in our understanding of God, apart from encountering God, then all that we are is a group of well-educated people who know nothing about the God that we claim to know. And so when we look at the Jewish leaders we see this temptation. The idolatry revealed in a desire, in a comfort with understanding God, but not knowing him. Now, let's go ahead and look at the second group, the response of the disciples. What was their response to the events that transpired? Well, when the disciples were called before the convened council, they were charged not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So what did they do? Did they grovel? Did they cower? Did they beg for forgiveness and request a second chance? No, that's not what the text reveals. Instead, we see that they said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, when you first read that, or at least when I first read it, I thought it was a strange response. But I, I would submit, after spending time wrestling with that verse, that what they were saying is this. Theologically speaking, we will let you decide if we should listen to you or God. But we cannot. In fact, if you look at other translations, the KJV, King James Version translation of the Bible, instead of saying that uh, we cannot but speak, says we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They knew Christ to be the power of God. 
They knew Christ to be the only name under heaven whereby men can be saved. They knew what John later would write about in John's epistle, the first epistle, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, when he said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim it, to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, something I want you to note about what John just said is that ultimately the conceptual John's ability to articulate, to communicate the truth of that which they felt with their hands, they saw with their eyes, and they heard with their ears, had an ultimate end. Its objective was so that we, every one of us, might have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. In other words, we get it all wrong. We want to focus on what we believe cerebrally instead of having an encounter, a personal experience a personal relationship with Christ. And from that personal relationship, which, which is ultimately a restored relationship, it is fellowship with the Father and the Son, comes not only sound doctrine, moral behavior that reflects who we are as children of God, but also the power of a Christian witness, which we'll look at here in just a moment. So when one truly knows Christ, personally, relationally, experientially. They prioritize relationship over reputation. And so that's what I want you to remember about this crowd, the disciples. The first crowd prioritized security over surrender, but the disciples prioritized relationship over reputation. They did not care two cents worth whether they were truly perceived as ignorant and uneducated men in the eyes of the Jewish leaders. Neither did they waste their time really trying to convince the Jewish leaders why they were wrong and the disciples were right. They gave instead an earth-shattering, riveting sermon that cut people to their heart that led to 5,000 people being converted to the church. These men ultimately spoke out of a relationship, out of a heart that had been broken and crushed and surrendered to the Lord Jesus. They prioritized relationship over reputation. I believe that one of the greatest challenges confronting the confessional church, which is what we are, we subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I um, believe that we should. I believe and I personally subscribe and have taken vows to uphold and to teach the Westminster Confession. Um, I believe sincerely that it is the most accurate interpretation of Scripture that we have uh, known to us. But one of the greatest challenges confronting those of us in the Western Church, in the confessional church in the Western Hemisphere, and, and you might even say in the evangelical church, is to allow what we deny to affirm what we believe. See, we have mistaken, we've made a very fundamental mistake in our witness to Christ. We have mistaken our responsibility to protest with our mission to conquest. 
we think as long as we tell the world what they believe is true that we don't, that somehow at the end of the day we'll convince them that they're wrong. Christ did not call you to protest. He called you to follow a conquering king. Christ did not call us to deny everything that the world says and to spend our time debating back and forth with people why they are wrong. He called us as a living organism, a living body to manifest Christ to the world in such a way that even if they cannot agree with what we say, they know that we are a city set on a hill, a light in the darkness around us. The disciples prioritized relationship over reputation. We are called to live out our faith, a faith that has been handed down to the saints, not merely to discuss it. We are called to live it out. We are called to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We are called to live lives that so reflect the dominion of heaven that others look at us and render praise to God, even if they disagree with us. So God forbid that you and I become so comfortable knowing about God that we're unwilling to know him, that we isolate ourselves in our bastions of orthodox doctrine and turn a blind eye to those around us who are in need. We do not show the world that we are the disciples of Christ by what we believe necessarily, not if it is simply no more than conceptual ideas. Rather, we show the world that we are his disciples by what we do. And if you truly want to know the definition of discipleship, it is knowledge that is inseparable from action. It is a knowledge that is centered on a person that is inseparable from action. Those whom Christ called on earth to be his disciples, it was not enough that they heard his teaching. He wanted them with him, first and foremost. And as they spent time with him, well, the book of Acts shows us what they did, what they became. Now, it's true that what we believe does determine what we do. Please, again, do not hear me incorrectly. But morality, apart from relationship, is legalism. It is only when we know Christ and the power of his resurrection and we have fellowship with his sufferings and are conformed to his death that we can engage our world with the mission of the gospel. We spend a lot of time talking about sin and holiness. And this may be a bit of an oversimplification, oversimplification but let me simply say this. The key to holiness is relationship. Biblically, Old Testament, in the Old Testament, one could only be holy to the degree to which you were set apart for God. And nothing has changed in the New Testament. So the question then becomes, do we struggle with sin? Are we living in sin? Do we struggle with outright disobedience to God? Well, the answer is an encounter with Christ. A relationship with him. Now, this brings me to my third point, the third section, the response of the watching world. So we're told in chapter 4, verse 4, which was not our text, that many of those who had heard the word preached by Peter and John believed, and that the number of men who came to faith was about 5,000. Now, that's just the number of men who came to faith. 
could be the number of everyone, or it could be men and women combined, or it could be just men, and then there were several women who came to faith and children as well. We don't know. But what we do know is that there was a mass conversion of people, not because they were given the three steps to salvation, not because they were confronted with a 12-step doctrine of self-help, but because they were confronted with a person, the Christ of the gospel, the Christ of Scripture. And then at the end of our text, which we did read today, it says that the crowd was praising God for what had happened. Now, I have a lot of books on my shelf on evangelism. And I thought it would be interesting to do an experiment and to go to Amazon Prime and to isolate books and type Christian evangelism. So I did it. And 50,000 books popped up. 50,000 books on Christian evangelism. From this text, I believe there are two fundamental truths that we need to learn about evangelism. First, you cannot give something you do not have. It doesn't matter what you believe morally, politically, socially, philosophically, you cannot give something you do not have. Which was one of the reasons why the greatest hypocrites during Christ's generation were not those who didn't believe what was, they were supposed to believe, but rather those who said they believed what they were supposed to believe and didn't act like it. The first fundamental thing we learn from this text about evangelism is that we cannot give something that we do not have. We cannot share a relationship that we have not experienced. When we invite others to know Christ experientially, ultimately God will receive the highest glory. The second thing that we can learn about evangelism from this passage, and don't worry, I'm not writing a book about evangelism, but the second thing that we learn about evangelism is that others will only be invited to experience Christ. And please hear this. I'm going to repeat it because I want you to write it down. Others will only be invited to experience Christ when we trust the sovereignty of God more than the certainty of our theology. Others will be invited to experience Christ, will only truly be invited to experience Christ when we trust the sovereignty of God more than the certainty of our theology. Now, I'm going to let that stew with some of you for a minute because it needs to. It needs to stew with all of us. The crowd of onlookers who heard the message of Peter and John, this message that was precipitated by the lame man being healed, ultimately responded in praise to a God they did not understand for an action, for a deed that they could not deny. Oftentimes, when you and I walk out to a watching world and we do not know the one that we present to them, it is an expected response that they seek to understand the God that they can deny by looking at our lives. And so, ultimately, our testimony becomes ineffectual. 
our witness becomes dim. Our light is put out. The key, and I want to bring this home because this is something that has been burning in my heart over the last several weeks as I think about the future, as I think about how that we as a congregation, as a church, can reach out to the households, the neighborhoods, the families around us, people in our own family, how that we share the gospel with others. Ultimately, we can only give what we have. And we can only present Christ to others when we trust his sovereignty more than the certainty of our theology. Now, the people who, according to the text, were praising God were not as familiar with God, or at least theology, as the Jewish leaders were. <clears throat> but they were intimately familiar with suffering. They may not have been as familiar with the law, the Torah, the Talmud, the commentary of the law, as were the Jewish leaders. But one thing they could not deny is that every day when they went to the temple and they left the temple precincts, there was this man who was suffering, who was laying at the gate. They may not have understood God, but they did understand suffering. Why do I repeat that? I repeat that because you and I as Christians understand suffering. We live in the overlap of the ages. When it, even though we are a new creation in Christ, we still suffer in this earth. And when you and I encounter people in the workplace or in the store or in our family, we have common ground, and that common ground is suffering. That common ground is that not only do we live in the world that God has created and made, but also we all suffer together. And so it was this suffering that ultimately was restored, not just healed, but restored, that became the context for the disciples proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Because the crowds responded with praise, and look at the very last line that Luke includes here in the book of Acts, the, the passage we just read, verse 22 of chapter 4. says, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Now, he wasn't just making a statement about this man's age for no reason. He was making a statement about the man's age because this man was lame from birth. And when he experienced the power of the gospel through the name of Christ in his life, he didn't gradually start walking. He started jumping and leaping and praising God. And so what the crowds witnessed was not simply healing, it was restoration. You and I preach a gospel not simply of healing, but a gospel of restoration. The gospel that should be lived out through our lives on a daily basis is not simply that Christ has come to save us from our sins, which is true, but that Christ has come to make us a new creation. That the old has passed away and all has become new. And how can we proclaim that message if our lives betray it in reality? It was total healing, restoration that this lame man encountered. The man did not simply have this obstacle removed. He was given full range of motion. I am learning what that means. So the question becomes, as we stand in a, the, the very beginning days of a new year, have you spent time with Jesus? And if so, how many lame people do you know? See, it's not what you know, it's what you do that's proof of whether you know who you say you know. Have you been with Jesus? 
And how many lame people do you know? Now, I don't know if you noticed it, but I am now, praise God, in two shoes. And the doctor tells me that the bone has healed, but I am reminded daily that the muscles and the tendons and the joints have not recovered. That they are healing but not healed, and there's much territory I have yet to cover. So, if you watch me close enough, you will see that I am limping. But I have hope. Hope that the more that I walk, the more limber my joints will become. That my full range of motion will be restored. Why do I share that? Because ultimately, the world is watching. They will not respond when we share with them the details behind the healing process, which is often like what we like to do. They will erupt with praise when they see our actions. And your responsibility, my responsibility, dear friend, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, those who have been with Jesus, our responsibility is to walk. You may start out with a limp. You may walk with a limp for the rest of your life. But keep walking. Allow the life of Christ, allow the relationship that you and I have with God through Christ to be the basis of the difference between you and the unbeliever. So walk and let them see you. Because in time, when restoration is complete, they will proclaim the goodness of God knowing that what we preach is indeed true. So in conclusion, when all is said and done, it is not what we know, but who we know that makes the difference. And it is not what we do, or I'm sorry, not what we know, but what we do that reflects whether we truly have been with him. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that everyone in here this morning has been presented with the person of Christ. And we pray, O oh God, that through your grace and through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would enable us, empower us to know you and the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your sufferings, being made conformable unto your death, Lord Jesus, and that with this personal, experiential knowledge, we might demonstrate to a world that is watching the power, the truth of the gospel. We ask that you would remove any hindrances and blinds from our lives, whether they be self-imposed by our own subculture or self-imposed by our own behavior or habits, or whether they be imposed from the outside. Father, we pray for the grace to see Jesus more clearly and to manifest him more certainly to those who are watching. May we all spend time with Jesus this year and may others know when they see what we do and they hear what we say, may they detect the aroma of Christ and may they know that we have been with him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.